Hello and welcome to Planning People, the newly rebranded New Model Advisor podcast. I'm Ollie Smith, online producer here at NMA, and this week I'm joined by two guests for a discussion about cybersecurity and digital demons in the financial services sector. They've both written books, they've both spoken at CityWire conferences, and they're both involved with the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at cross-party think tank Demos. What a mouthful. Uh, a warm welcome to my guests, Jamie Bartlett and Carl Miller. Hello, guys. How are you? Hello. Hello there. Good stuff. Um, so we'll just go straight into it. Um, you must get this asked a lot, but it's pretty important for our listeners and indeed the general public, really. Just how safe is our money? I know we talked about this a bit earlier. I think um, we're living through probably the worst law enforcement crisis in the history of modern policing. Um, over the last two years, we've only just realised how... Um, much crime flows through the internet, half of all crime now. You're 20 times more likely to be burgled um, via your online accounts than you are to be burgled in your house. Um, uh, and it's been called the largest redistribu redistribution of wealth in history by a former director of the NSA very recently. Um, the, quite, the question exactly of how vulnerable individuals are, I think, is slightly different. They're often covered by banks and insurance companies from personal loss. Um, but certainly, I think the, the kind of financial system, as it's moved online, has become incredibly vulnerable to cybercrime. And as of yet, we have very little idea, I think, um, as um, kind of as liberal democracies and, and, and police forces within them about exactly how we increase the kind of penalties and costs of cybercrime to, to, to start reducing this kind of activity. It's a big problem. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, your money in your bank's pretty safe still, obviously. Bank security is, uh, is excellent and they're always, always working on this. Um, online identity theft, which is then used to create fake accounts to try and open accounts in your name, is just an enormous nuisance. Mm -hmm. That's becoming a much bigger problem. Uh, defrauding your, let's say, Amazon or eBay accounts, so getting the passwords for those, hacking into those, using your PayPal account to try to fraudulently buy stuff and then sell it on the black market, another big problem. So there's those kinds of ways that your money via your identity is at great risk, as Carl said, which sort of suggests that insurance for those sorts of problems is extremely important. And as long as you're very carefully covered and insured for those, it's, you know, you're relatively okay. But you're, unfortunately, you're not going to stop the actual problem itself. Mm. It's interesting you mention uh, the whole Amazon PayPal thing. That actually happened to me a couple of years ago. Oh, really? It's quite quite terrifying. Yes, someone um, broke into my Amazon and bought a brand new iPhone 6s, but sort of 600, 700 pounds, uh, to be delivered to this very office uh, and presumably intercepted before it made it through the door yeah. uh, using a kind of a discounted Prime code. Um, has it happened to either of you guys? Have you ever sort of run into trouble like that? I don't think I, I think I think I think I've had the odd dodgy transaction that I've been phoned about and the mm. bank said we don't think this was you and indeed it wasn't me. I mean because you know, when you're on somewhere like the dark net for example you see the incredible volume of credit card numbers that are being bought and sold all the time. Yeah. So you're always at risk of that. Yeah. So that's happened a couple of times where the bank security has actually prevented it before it's happened. I mean, I have had cryptocurrency stolen. Really? That's another Do thing altogether. Crypto? That's another thing altogether. Okay. Tell so me about that. that. But that's, a, that's a very Well, for a very long time, um, uh, people were holding their crypto assets in, in third-party accounts. Okay. So a company would essentially hold it for you. Yeah. You know, you'd buy a certain amount of crypto and they would hold your, your portfolio for you. And if they get hacked, 
and they have the cryptocurrency uh, sort of filtered out, exfiltrated and moved to another wallet, it's very hard to get that money back. And yeah. that's what happened to me. It was in the early days when it was quite an immature market. Um, I don't know really whether... Was it Bitcoin? It wasn't Bitcoin. It was another okay. one. But the, the annoying thing is that it was a lot if you worked it out by today's value. I mean a lot. I mean life-changing amount. <laughs> really? Yeah. But so it was worth would I have bottled it and sold it? It was much more than 100 quid. Wow. Um, would I have bottled it and sold it before it got to that value? And so it's hard to know actually how much it was. So I judge it by today's amount. It was a, for a small fortune. Um, but it was like, again, that was when it was quite an immature market and there was no insurance policies available. You couldn't even hold this, these cryptocurrencies on your own wallet at the time. And that's yeah. how, how immature it was. So things have changed as well. But that, that's another massive problem. I mean, the amount of cryptocurrency related fraud and crime has grown dramatically in the last couple of years. Carl, is this a Pandora's box, the whole crypto thing? It seems to be uh, you know, something that, on which a lot of uh, future financial ideas are staked. But is it, is it going to bring us more problems than it solves? Um, by us, I think it's certainly bringing problems to states and governments, incredibly huge ones, around mm. how things should be taxed, regulated, controlled or not. Mm. Um, to be honest, I mean, I've just probably with lots of people kind of, kind of gone through waves of both being incredibly excited by decentralization and all the things it might offer. Mm. Um, you know, there are kind of technologists and developers spread all the way across the world that desperately want to see different ways to the tech giants, different kinds of services, different ways of people coming together online when all the kind of pipes don't point inwards to one central repository and blockchain. Um, and crypto might well offer, you know, entirely new ways for people to do exactly that. Mm. Um, but I think the one thing that we've been waiting to see for quite a long time, and, 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 and I, I don't think really yet has emerged, is that kind of life-changing kind of killer application where we see blockchain actually doing something practically yeah. very different. To crowdfund hospitals or... Right. I mean, you know, or, or, or just, or, you know, j just some kind of functional service or offering, which is, is really different to people and enough to kind of really start changing a market in a big way. So um, I think Bitcoin was was obviously the first to kind of really, really explode in terms of, of, of its both its market capitalization and um, and its popularity. Mm. Um, but the problem there, and the problem I think with many of these things, is in, in exactly doing so, it kind of undermined all the reasons for why it was created. It was supposed to be a currency. It was supposed to sure. be an exchange of value. Yeah, not an asset. Right, and, and, and as it became an asset, and as people, as they say, hoddled, and as the transaction cost went through the roof, and as mining became more and more difficult, um, all those kind of efficiencies that it was supposed to bring as a currency kind of completely got swept away. Mm. Am I being a do-mongering idiot by uh, worrying about the potential for financial crime to cause another financial crash of some kind? Just thinking, obviously, the 2008 one was sort of imported from the US from the housing market, toxic debt, etc. But you know, how scared should we really be about this stuff? Do they have the you know does it have the potential in the wrong hands to be? You know, to be that damaging? No, I mean, I, 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 I'm incredibly worried by it as well. I don't think you're a, a doom monger. And I think there's, there's, probably, there's probably two different threat vectors, to use that phrase, from cybersecurity here. Mm. One is the illicit transfer of wealth. Um, now, there's been all kinds of different studies trying to measure the kind of size of the cybercrime industry. Lots of different cybersecurity firms do this for obvious reasons. Um, and at the moment, it's kind of pretty much priced as being somewhat larger than the international drugs market 
and slightly smaller than the international energy market. Mm. So that is an incredibly kind of significant slice of, mm. of global GDP yeah. in the kind that you know in this illicit economy. And that's not just simply me stealing money from your bank account. That's the whole thing. All the things that Jamie mentioned as well, credit card details being bought and sold. Um, there's another threat vector as well, though. Um, and I think we're actually speaking a lot less about this one. And this is um, the way in which um, financial markets will tie in with information warfare. Okay. So oh. another, another, another big kind of trend, another big societal problem is obviously fake news. It's the militarization of the internet. It's the mm. way in which small numbers of capable actors can step into the internet and begin to manipulate en masse the kinds of information which people see. Mm. Now, Cambridge Analytica, Russian bots, kind of um, hashtags and Twitter storms have been the things that have first stepped into the kind of spotlight as being parts of that information warfare. But I see no reason why um, it's going to stop there. Mm. Now, frankly, if I was a foreign state actor wanting to disrupt the daily life of the United Kingdom, I wouldn't be building Twitter bots. I would be trying to manipulate financial information. Mm. Can you imagine if people began to spoof things which could actually start to influence the stock market. Yeah. Can you imagine if they could actually spoof the stock market? Yeah. There's all kinds of information security questions that I think like the information warfare kind of, um, um, kind of angle raises. And I would say that that, as much as cybercrime, as it's classically understood, is, is an enormous threat to um, kind of financial stability. Oh, you've got to stop giving people ideas. I mean, this is dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> I should just add that this was not the purpose of the podcast. Can I add a couple in there as well, oh, just to make matters uh, slightly worse? A lot of <laughs> cybersecurity specialists talk about the big one. Like we're waiting for the big one. Right. Some sort of catastrophic hack of either critical national infrastructure or of sort of major banks and the Trident. Sort of mini melt. Exactly, yeah. And I think that the big one is sort the of in, in reference to the sort of West Coast earthquake that everyone's waiting for. Okay. It, and, and I'm not so sure about, I'm not so sure about how, how easy or probable that is. What is likely, that, and I think this is where Carl's point is, actually, is absolutely right. And, 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 and I imagine it will be twinned with a smart use of machine learning and artificial intelligence. I mean, a, a recent survey of black hat hackers, I don't know how they got the data, but they did, um, probably at DEF CON conference of black hat hackers, um, two thirds of them said they are planning this year to use AI as part of their hacking operations. So try to pick up patterns of behavior of certain people using machine learning, work out or automatically generate spear phishing attacks on them that's most likely to sort of touch their emotional well-being or emotional state in such a way that they would click on it, essentially using the kind of thing that Cambridge Analytica did, yeah. but in trying to uh, manipulate people or manipulate markets. Um, this seems to me highly probable. This is one of the reasons that I think a lot of big firms are investing heavily in AI as a form of defense against those attacks. Mm. So the way that I see this is a sort of auto, if you think about other bits of our economy becoming automated, crime's gonna become automated as well. Mm. So you can automatically write scripts that will immediately scan for every single possible vulnerability on any network, automatically then identify the best vector attack on that network, and then automatically fire that off. 
mm. and happening at a kind of industrial scale. So the, the, it's more that that's the kind of thing that I anticipate. Whether I mean, and whether that's going to result in a, another financial crime, mean, that's, mm. that's another question. And one other thing, just to bring it back to blockchain. We the interesting thing about blockchain and the reason a lot of people really are excited by it in this industry is because it it provides a distributed, uh, immutable database of transaction of a sort of record of transactions. But of course, the more complex blockchains are looking at putting more types of information on those on those distributed databases, including criminals will think malware. Mm. And you've seen a lot of examples already of people placing malware or inaccurate information onto blockchains, and then you cannot get them off once they're on. Mm. And as big companies, IBM and Maersk have got a big business partnership going about using blockchain for shipping, and I think that's actually really interesting. And in 10 years, I think we will use blockchain to automatically and cheaply um, uh, work out where goods are, twinned with Internet of Things devices, work out where goods are and automatically tax them at, at, at entry at customs. Mm. But people will be looking for ways of putting inaccurate information on those blockchains as well. And that's going to cause a massive problem for the authorities and companies because once it's on, you can't really get it off. Mm. I want to jump in here very quickly because I was at DEFCON last year and I saw DeepHack being trialled. Would you mind just explaining for our listeners what uh, DEFCON actually is? Just to DEFCON, the, the uh, largest and I think it's safe to say most notorious gathering of hackers in the world happening every year in Las Vegas. Okay. Caesars Palace, tens of thousands of different kinds of players suddenly emerge in snack, around Snackus Maximus, mm. um, Shock Blue Mohawks kind of blockchain tattoos, coder joke t-shirts. Um, tens of thousands of them all, all, all gather. Um, and one of the things they do there is the best hackers amongst them all um, on huge stages with kind of 10,000 kind of what, watching, watching fellow hackers. Um, they demonstrate the kind of the most the cleverest and, and most ingenious hacks of the year. And one of the things that was on that stage was deep hack, which was the application of, a, of quite kind of sim simple, straightforward AI to try and hack websites. And it was, it, they demonstrated that an AI could learn how to um, exploit vulnerabilities in a, in a website itself in order to pull data from it. Now, what's interesting, I think, about this question around the automation of both offense and defense mm. is that we're often asked, and I'm sure lots of other cybersecurity experts are asked much more than us, kind of who's going to win in the long run? Is the internet is financial systems, um, banking, are these things going to become safer or more dangerous to do? And the answer, I think, is that we don't know mm. because both offense and defense will become a question of kind of dueling maths. They both become separately questions of independent technology trajectories. Mm. There will be people trying to use AI to undermine the security of financial systems and to ensure them. Mm. Um, and it's very hard to know with these different maths dueling against each other. It's very hard to tell kind of what the outcome of that is going to be. It's very hard to know whether AI is going to be better at detecting threats or finding vulnerabilities. Yeah, and I'm uh, just thinking uh, this is perhaps a bit sort of fantastical, but. You, you sort of divide those two teams up, but what if there what if there's someone working for both sides? Yeah. Well, and that's probably the double-edged sword of DefCon is that well they play a game there called Spot the Fed, which is uh, in uh, in lots of the uh, events trying to spot the NSA, GCHQ, FBI um, members of the room. But the reality is that you know whether you're state or criminal, spy or or or, uh, or hacker. Um, 
you all need to learn the same stuff. Yeah. Sure. So, so I actually don't think often the, the kind of the spies there were there to um, kind of keep tabs on the criminals. I actually think they were there to pick up skills themselves to take back with them. Yeah. Let's just have a, a quick chat about the sort of authority, the state side of it. What is your personal sense of how well, how good a handle, you know, states and governments and specifically the British government? Uh, I think you have to make a very clear distinction between the very top, which is GCHQ and sure. the National Crime Agency, which is around the corner. Yeah. Here. <laughs> I'm probably listening in. Hi. Um, and, the, uh, and the local police forces. Yeah. At the very top level, incredibly skillful people, incredibly good technical know-how, lots of capabilities that we know about, many others that we don't know about. Um, the problem is that is used for the detection and prevention of organised crime, like serious organised crime and terrorism. The lower level police, if you can call them that, the sort of local officers, the bobbies on the beats, many of whom are actually going to be investigating fraud, uh, don't have anywhere near the same level of skill or the same level of technical know-how, the legal authority to act. So we've got a kind of a weird disconnect yeah, at the top yeah an imbalance and for a lot of those that are dealing with the sort of the the the, the, the coalface of a lot of cyber crime which is often ordinary people phoning up the police and saying this has happened my password's been stolen my identity been... they they are really really struggling to go back to Carl's first point they are really struggling with an enforcement crisis which is a bit of a problem for the authorities because a lot of people think they're ubiquitous and they can do everything because GCHQ is pretty damn good. Mm. But the reality for people's ordinary experience is that actually the police are pretty helpless with a lot of this. Mm. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Jamie's absolutely right. The kind of scattering of um, kind of um, online enforcement capability, skills and tech amongst 43 different local police forces is pretty much the opposite of how you would design the police force today to um, yeah, police police the internet. But but I'll interpret your question slightly differently, which is that how good are states generally at enforcing the law online, whether it's GCHQ or, or police forces here or around the world? And the answer is they're incredibly poor for the reason that they are fundamentally territorially based. Mm. And the IC, the biggest problem with law enforcement is being a jurisdictional one. Yeah, it's geographical. Crime can pass unbelievably easy across borders. Mm. And almost every law enforcement investigation runs into the same problem, which is that the victims are in one country, the perpetrators allegedly um, are in another, the evidence is in a third country. And police forces, just simply the way that it is all set up, cannot reach across those borders and gather things together. Even reasonably trivial crimes, you know, a kid DDoSing the local school, a kid knocking a local school's website offline. Even that, you know, might be done with Amazon Web Services services uh, and the police have to write an MLAT, a Mutual Legal Assistant Treaty. It can take a year to go to Amazon, compel them to hand over the data, go back and by that time the data's out of date anyway and, yeah. and uh, they haven't got a business case for, for prosecuting the case. Yeah, and they've already spent more money than they've saved. Right, and, and that's, a, that's a trivial matter that if it hadn't happened through the internet it would have been sorted out by a, pol a local police force in a day and now it's taking a year and it's... and. You know, so I heard the same thing. I've heard the same thing again and again from cybercrime officers, which is that, that if you know what you're doing, the chances of you getting caught if you're doing cybercrime are basically nil. Even if we are in the same country, even if I want to victimise you and I'm sat next to you, all I've got to do is you say a Russian service 
or a service in a, in a country which um, has no kind of um, law enforcement cooperation with the UK, incredibly difficult then for police forces to, 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 um, to get that evidence and put it in a courtroom. So I think, so I, I did say that we're living through the worst law enforcement crisis in history of modern policing. I genuinely believe that's true. I don't think it's hyperbolic. Um, and I think that in addition to all the problems with how the police are actually set up themselves organisationally, I think we are have, I genuinely think we have to begin to think about an entirely new idea of what law and order and justice looks like online. I think we need to develop something closer to like justice without jurisdiction. Mm. We have to start developing an idea which recognises that we have no reason prospect of bringing a lot of cyber criminals into a British court. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's, um, I think that leads quite neatly onto sort of what, what, what do we do, what do companies do, what do the authorities actually try mm. to do uh, with this problem? And I mean, some of it, I think, is going to be just simply there's more responsibilities on companies to resolve these problems themselves. Do you think they're up to, up to speed with that? Do you think they fully face that? As a lot more than a year ago, mm. without a doubt, because they've been, they've been hurt quite a lot over the yeah. last couple of years. And they also realise that these things are happening, they're getting targeted, and the police can't stop it. So they're having to take more responsibility for themselves. Um, I unfortunately think one of the things that will happen is just much more harsh exemplary punishment is handed out for various types of cybercrime because that's the only way the um, the police or I mean in, or Parliament in this case decides that we can actually get a handle on this by deterring people from doing it rather than actually stopping them afterwards. Yeah. And you can see little clues in that. I mean, we're constantly now talking about increasing the amount of time that you would be put behind bars if you were viewing extremist content online. Why? Because the, the, the authorities know there's actually no real way of stopping it. You just have to scare people away. Yeah. So we are, I mean, I think the, the position of the police at the moment is to try to squeeze criminals so it's less cost efficient for them to do it. Like it's not worth their time to do it because it's, it's far too easy to get away with at the moment i.e. advice, nobody pay the ransomware if you do get hacked mm. with malware demanding Bitcoin in payment. Don't pay it, mm. i.e. don't make this a financially worthwhile thing for criminals to do. Mm. This is a very uh, macro portrait of, of what's going on. I'm just thinking of the small um, business owner you know, in a village or a town uh, in the home counties who you know, maybe has a couple of hundred grand in revenue tops uh, and you know, runs a computer system and has emails, et cetera, et cetera, a few sort of outsourced bits of tech. Could be a financial advisor, could equally be you know, a, a fruit seller or a fruit vendor or whatever. Um, you know, do these people need to be worried about this as much as the, you know, the people in the tall towers are? Everyone needs to be worried by it. Um, I, I think the, the larger you get, the, obviously the greater your liabilities, the more complex your supply chain systems, the, the larger the number of customers that might be affected. And obviously, usually the uh, more data that you hold on people as well, um, the greater target you become. But, but it, 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 this, this is a question I probably get asked any, more than anything else. And especially after I've been talking to people about all the dangers of cybercrime, people come up and always say, what can I actually do mm. to kind of change? What, what, what do I need to do? Yeah. And to be honest, I, I don't have a kind of five-point guide to how you stay safe online. I mean, I genuinely think that the internet is just quite an unsafe place to be yeah. at the moment. I mean, it's a Cold War academic information exchange system that we've stuck our bank, our private diary, um, and our, our and our shop front onto. Mm. It was never built for this stuff. It was never built to be safe. So, 
I would say for, for, for every kind of small business owner is to go in and use the internet knowing the risks that it would entail. Mm -hmm. And I genuinely think sometimes actually digitalization has become quite fetishized. It's become this idea that, well, we need to put all our things on the internet. We need yeah. to do things a different way. And I, it, that isn't necessarily true. It's not, it's not necessarily has to be um, the way in which businesses um, have to operate. Now, I know that sounds strange coming from a digital researcher who's basically giving advice that maybe um, kind of undigitize yourselves. But um, I, I, I genuinely think that um, the, the, the kind of everyone should know the kind of costs and risks here. The, um, the thing about some small businesses is that they think that they're not going to be targeted because I'm small, who cares about yeah. me? But everyone holds data now, and criminals don't really care. They're not. They're not. They're often not actually targeting specific companies. They're just scanning to find any weaknesses anywhere. Yeah, it's a blanket. Yeah, exactly. So, so they will. They will identify any company with any weak bit of software, outdated software, like lack security measures relating to their data, and exploit it because it's so easy. So you got they've got to get out of the mindset that oh I'm just a I'm just a humble what did you say a fruit fruit, fruit vendor. vendor in the home counties <laughs> <laughs> perhaps that was a bit sort of <laughs> couple of hundred, couple hundred grand a couple in revenue yeah, not <laughs> very much uh, but, but you, know, you 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 will you will be target you will be targeted because uh, because you're there you're online somewhere what I mean so to me the key things have always been about having backups in place so you will you have a plan ready when your data is stolen rather mm. than if. Yeah. So there's a backup plan ready of your, if you're hacked and, you're, and ransomware is put onto your system, you have a very good backup system ready to go so you don't lose a lot of downtime. And being prepared to explain to your customers, the people whose data might have been lost, what's happened, when it happened, and what you're going to do in response. Because one of the things that I think a lot of customers understand now that businesses get hacked. What really annoys them they're is they're not informed and they're not told. And so this is also partly a kind of communications exercise to be ready, both in terms of your, your software system or whatever, and your forward-looking, front-facing communications package for the people that are affected. I mean, I, I remember going for a coffee with a hacker and he was so paranoid because he knew better than anyone else what all the dangers were. The, the kind of digital life that he was living was unbelie unbelievably inconvenient. You know, he had four different phones, each running through VPNs, each in a different Faraday cage to make sure that they couldn't get, um, sorry, you know, his, his cards in a Faraday cage to make sure that they couldn't get scanned. He never used the same password twice, which is why he claimed he couldn't buy the coffee, because he just had this pocket full of different, you know, 45-digit kind of completely nonsensical passwords for each of his different accounts. None of his accounts were linked to each other. So mm. if, he, if one got taken out, then the other ones would be okay. Like, you know, basically it entailed a series of inconveniences and, and risks to him and costs that I, I actually don't think most people no. would be willing to actually do. There's a trade-off between security and convenience, and each company's got to sort of find one that they're happy, that they're happy with. But most of them, I think, are need to go a little bit towards the security side at the cost of a bit of convenience. But... Let's not overdo it. Yeah. I don't use I don't use Tor every like the, the the anonymous web browser every time I want to quickly check what the news is on the BBC. But I do use Tor if I want to go into some dodgy websites to do some research. 
Mm. Yeah, and I, I'd actually say that, so the, the National Crime Agency, our current next door neighbours, um, they, <laughs> they, they, they did some very excellent uh, victimology recently of, of, um, of, of, of uh, cybercrime um, victims. Um, and they realised that actually most cybercrime victims are, tend to be more vulnerable, tend to be older, um, and tend to be um, less wealthy. Now that, that kind of implies that a lot of the kind of risk profile is actually reasonably kind of reasonably crude scams. Mm. So, you know, not clicking dodgy links, for instance, being careful about people that phone you or send you emails. Um, so th there's, there's probably like just, a, 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 you know, some practical kind of day-to-day -day things, which I think many listeners would probably just do as a matter of course anyway, that if followed, certainly would not make you completely safe online. No one's completely safe online, literally nobody, I think. But um, certainly, I think we'll remove some of the threats and some of these the, these things that Jamie spoke about. These kind of crude, kind of scaled, you know, scans, scams, that kind of thing that, that criminals work, can now send out in very large quantities. If they if, if a very good hacker deliberately targets you, I genuinely think sometimes there's actually very little that you can do. But you can probably protect yourself against a lot of the kind of volume volume crime which is out yeah, there. Yeah, the basics like when you walk out your front door now, you lock you double lock your door or whatever, and you check that your windows closed. Don't put a USB stick into a computer yeah. when you don't know where it's come Especially from. Especially one that you find in your local car park. Don't use password. <laughs> don't as your password. Basic stuff, right? Really basic stuff. But, but you also, not everyone fits the most insane home security system into their flat because there's no point or it's too expensive. It might make it a bit safer, but you don't want cages on all of your windows. Yeah. But you, know, you get the basics right. Yeah. And it's a bit like that. Mm, okay. Any sort of final tips, do you think, for any sort of tips for listeners? Or do you think if you've got to do one thing in the day, you know, to get back on track? I'm just, I'm just wondering which security. of us is going to get hacked first. Really? By so <laughs> neither of you have been hacked yet. <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying that because the minute you say that, yeah, someone you will guaranteed hack you. someone will hack into your Actually, the, a hacker once targeted <laughs> both of us together. <laughs> they did. Um, it's quite good, actually. Yeah, and sent, um, sent um, text messages to Jamie pretending to be from me and then vice versa. Really? It uh, was incredibly good. Yeah. It had both of us going for quite a long time before yeah. we realised that something was, uh, something was up. But What yeah. did the text messages say? I think Jamie, Jamie's text messages to me were how bad my book was. Um, <laughs> your, yours they were to quite, me? They were quite hurtful. <laughs> Yours to me was something about um, was something about don't retweet yourself because that's kind of my thing, Jamie. <laughs> and I'm worried about like that you're stealing my ideas. And I was like, what is he talking about? <laughs> wow, it was clever. Okay. Um, so no, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I think I think I think Carl mentioned the National Crime Agency sort of guide to cybersecurity. GCHQ's done one. Others have done, others mm. have done them. And they're often about, here's like the five most basic ways to avoid the most basic attacks. Mm. That is a really useful starting point. Two-factor authentication, password reuse, data backups, easy things. And once you sort of integrate them into your business and they become part of the course, you've got, you're 90% you're of the way there. Mm. I'd say lastly, sorry, I thought something. There's, there was... Um, Checking to see what there, there was, there's a series. There's been a series of very large consumer data breaches over the last couple of years. Um, I think most people that were involved in those breaches still don't know that their data was breached, and so I would say that quite a useful place to start would be to go onto one of the many websites 
where you can kind of check to see whether your email details have been out there, whether your financial details are out there. Much of it hasn't been leveraged yet. You know, it's still being, it's still on kind of large dumps of data that no one's really yeah. gone through. Or, have you been pawned is one of them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. PWNED. Yeah, PWNED. And just put your name in or your email address and it'll find out whether you've had all your data stolen or not and where. That's a good place to start. Wow, well that's my evening sorted. <laughs> uh, thanks very much guys. Lucky um, you. That's uh, lucky me. That's just about all that we've t- got time for this week. Um, all that's left to say is an enormous thanks to my guests Carl and Jamie. Thank you both. That was fascinating and scary in each, or me- in each uh, equal measure I think. Um, join us again next week for another episode of Planning People but in the meantime please don't forget to check out our back catalogue on iTunes. It is growing steadily. Uh, you can use it on the uh, platform uh, of your choice and do leave, leave us a review if you like what we do. So thanks and goodbye. Thanks very much.